A new era is upon us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders, and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present-day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hey there, I'm Jeff Berman. I'm Zach Ahrens. Thank you so much for that super warm introduction, Jeff Berman. While I don't look like Jeff today, I certainly am going to do my best to sound like Jeff. On to you. We have a super special guest today, right? Do you want to introduce yourself? This is Mike Sroka speaking. I'm the co-founder and CEO of DealPath. Thank you for having me. Today on Tangent, we have Mike Sroka, co-founder and CEO of DealPath, a leading cloud-based software platform for commercial real estate investment and development teams. Hi, Mike. Where does this podcast find you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm in San Francisco and our company is co-headquartered in San Francisco and New York City. Wonderful. I heard you don't have uh, Whole Foods anymore in San Francisco, though. That's unfortunate. Yes, that is unfortunate. A lot of crazy stuff happening in the city. Wait, I, I know that we normally wait until the end to talk about how we want to improve the city, but he's in San Francisco. And can we start with that? Can we flip the script? Can we just go on a tangent and flip the script? We just did. Mike. The future of cities, and in this case, the present. What's one aspect, one feature of San Francisco that you would choose to change, to improve? We're giving you a magic wand. Today, you're the mayor. Wow. Well, yes, I am based in San Francisco. And uh, I think maybe first focusing on some of the positives. San Francisco has amazing proximity to cool things and has really great infrastructure for building software and technology companies. That's something that impressed me when I was really brought here 16 years ago and have built a, a family and companies here. That being said, the city is also crazy expensive and the city hasn't addressed some very concerning health and safety issues as we have confronted the pandemic and the reopening, the return to office, and now trying to get back to more regular rhythms. San Francisco is noticeably behind uh, other cities. And because we're co-headquartered in San Francisco and New York, and I, I get to travel a fair amount, it's always interesting to compare and see the differences between cities. And um, I do feel envious of uh, other cities like New York that have gotten closer to pre-pandemic rhythms. Are, are you in the city proper? Our company is in the middle of the financial district at California and Battery Street. I'm in the office five days a week. I'm also a BART commuter into the city. Sometimes I, I think about public transportation as kind of the best view into uh, the the activity in and out of the city. So without delving into, into politics, because that's not what, what this is about, from a livability and workability perspective, what do you think the city should, and more importantly, could do? What is viable for San Francisco to inch closer to where New York has gotten? And, and New York still has a, a long way to go. None of us are in the office today, but New York from a livability standard has certainly come back from its uh, pandemic lows. So I'd love to hear more about like what you think the city should and could do. Well, 
I think that it's really noticeable and distinctive how different it is between being in the city versus being in the suburbs. Feels like different universes right now. And that really does kind of focus on these health and safety issues in the city in order to to have density, you really must have a, a strong emphasis on on health and safety. And right now, those things are lacking. That makes it hard for people to to come back. It makes it hard for people to bring their kids, their spouses um, into to the city. It makes it unpleasant to to do a number of things. So I think that there's really basic things that we probably take for granted. And perhaps I'm oversimplifying it, but I would say enforcing the law is really important. And while San Francisco has a culture of tolerance, I think that that has resulted in a situation that is making it really hard to, to have density. Good points from an insider. Thank you for that, Mike. DealPath has been a category creator for acquisitions, developments, and financing, powering deals across all asset classes of commercial real estate for the likes of Blackstone, Nuveen, L&M, and Oxford. But before we dive deep into DealPath, the industry is undergoing transformation, some may say a paradigm shift particularly in how we use retail and office space. Concerns about a commercial real estate crash have followed the collapse of SVB and some other regional banks. Would love to get your thoughts on what you're seeing in the market right now. There's a lot there, and maybe we can split track that. First, maybe looking at some of the recent volatility in banking. I think that we're maybe closest to SVB and Signature Bank, and I think that it was sad to see the events at SVB, which had a, a long and successful history as a great partner to, to startups. There's a lot of great people there, and I believe they actually have a, a very solid business model. Unfortunately, the balance sheet management proved to be a problem. And uh, we all learned that bank runs can now happen at digital speed. So uh, I think, you know, we see the situation at SVB really affecting the tech community rather than it really being something that directly impacts commercial real estate. Signature is a little bit different and does ha have more exposure to commercial real estate. And I would probably defer to, to Jeffrey and Zach on, on what they're seeing there. You know, beyond SVB and Signature, I think we now have I think a lot of inspection of other regional banks. But the bigger story is really around what is happening with commercial real estate exposure and commercial real estate lending. I think that that is really just emerging now over the past few months or even the past few weeks starting to really boil up as, you know, actually much larger than than tech banking and still a, a lot of unknowns on, on how this will flow through. What we do know is that through the pandemic and reopening and return to office, there's been this dramatic shift in usage and patterns that the cash flows of certain property types have been dramatically affected. And that now the, the cost of capital has also increased dramatically. So with those things, there has been a change in valuation or an expected change in valuation, because I think that we're just starting to go through price discovery and uh, really identify what that means. This has a huge impact for for owners, for lenders, for for everybody in the market. I think right now we're just starting to see more of these assets trade and how they can potentially be recapitalized. And uh, there's going to be a lot of action here for sure. I think that there's hope that there can be uh, kind of a, a soft and smooth landing. I think that there's also acknowledgement of the potential of a more dramatic situation that could even require government intervention, uh, almost like an RTC style intervention, and lots of different scenarios in between. We don't have a crystal ball and, and know what that means, but I think that our ears are up and, and certainly watching and, and learning um, to see how things unfold. 
I think there's going to be a significant repricing event associated when Newmark uh, comes to market with the six billion dollar anticipated signature loan book. It was six or sixty. Sixty. Yeah, I think, I think it was sixty. Wow. Um, I mean, Barry Gosden's going to have a very good quarter. Yeah. So so once once we get repricing on that, it's going to be really interesting. I, I have a few friends on the equity side who have left very safe jobs. They were sort of next in line to take over their companies had they stayed at their established real estate companies for another 10, 15 years. Many people have left recently saying this is a generational buying opportunity on the equity side. I think Signature is specifically interesting because it's so New York centric. So a lot of these assets are pretty impaired. Some of them have ground leases. Impaired from, from multiple perspectives. That's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, there, there are assets with, you know, let's say there's an asset where the single tenant commercial asset uh, Signature had the senior piece. There's a mez piece somewhere. Uh, that has an A and a B piece that's been separated and sold off to two different owners. Let's say there's a preferred equity holder as well. And then let's say there's a sponsor on the equity side of that asset. That's five, uh, five parties, one of whom might be signature, no longer exists. They're now all not talking to each other. And uh, their lawyers are having a field day in court, basically leeching everybody. And they're sitting in court figuring out what to do because this asset is so underwater. Um, a mutual friend of Jeff and I just told me about a transaction that sold for half of the basis of the equity holder, right? So like the debt is willing to take an impairment just to get out of the deal, especially if the lender doesn't exist, like in the case of Signature, right? So a friend of mine was just telling me if he can come in there and be a therapist and get everybody talking and buy the fulcrum position, that's usually the B piece on the debt side, or maybe it's the preferred equity, or, or in some cases, it's both, you can effectively get control of an upside down asset. And to Jeff's point, there are assets that are not just upside down from a cap stack perspective, like what I'm describing, there are assets that are single tenant, highly amenitized, expensive commercial assets, where the single tenant has exercised an early termination option, and you effectively have releasing risk in a completely uncertain market. And the last point I'll make is you have a triple convexity whammy associated with your debt if you borrowed at floating rates. Number one, you now have higher rates. Number two, you have spreads that have been blown out. So you have higher spreads. So even if rates have only gone up 400 basis points, your loan has gone up 700 basis points. The real thing that's killing people right now other than the fact that they underwrote rent growth and you have rent contraction, which hopefully will be good long-term for inflation, is the insurance that it costs to insure these floating rate policies has gone up tenfold. So no one can effectively afford this. So as soon as the new mark marketed signature book starts to trade, you're going to see a wave of effectively short sales where it's not the bank failing, it's not necessarily the equity holder even failing, but it's people going to market with a workout. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is another major event. Every downside cycle we've seen, whether it's 1982, whether it's 2008, there's been an event in March, unfortunately tends to happen around my birthday, and then another event in August, September, October. And so we had Bear in March of 08, then we had Lehman. We had in August of 1982, which is the most similar market to today, we had the Kuwaiti Stock Exchange 
crash that thankfully marked the end of that bear market. But holy cow, was it painful? So I think the real estate industry has got to buckle up. Yeah, I concur. And it's interesting when you think about the opportunity set that that presents potential buyers, you also have to be cognizant of the fact that during the, the GFC in, in, in 08 and 09, the Fed had substantial tools at its disposal to help move the crisis along. That doesn't exist right now because of the inflationary pressures. And some of the other impairments that I was that I was referring to are also like in New York City, local law 97. If you have old buildings that have all of the issues that Zach just listed, plus they're going to have to invest in either retrofitting or doing something to get into compliance with that regulation. As another mutual friend of, of Zach and mine says, woof, that was for you, Henry. Local Law 97, uh, tangent glossary. Um, it was included in the Climate Mobilization Act passed by New York City's mayor in the Green New Deal. So that means decarbonization of buildings, how we operate them, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, just to add some context, uh, almost a quarter of office building loans need to be refinanced in 2023 at, at higher rates and lower quality properties where vacancy rates are high are at the greatest risk, uh, as Zach points out. Um, it also seems like even Class A buildings or some that were even considered trophy assets not long ago could face uh, troubles when their value get reassessed for refinancing. For example, Blackstone bought a couple of Class A office towers in Santana, California in, in 2014, and they just sold them uh, days ago at a 36% discount, and it could have been much worse. However, let's add some nuance to, to the discussion. Let's look at the bright spots. About three-fourths of commercial real estate debt generates enough income to pass banks' recent refinancing standards without major changes. To date, banks have had virtually no losses on commercial real estate, and companies are showing little need to default either on loans to banks or on rent payments to office building owners, unless you happen to be the owner of Twitter's headquarters. And last but not least, uh, industrial retail and hotels seem to be solid overall. I was just at a conference, they were saying that the nearshoring impact and the supply chain diversification away from China. So people are saying, I'm going to move my supply chain away from China, but I'm going to set up redundancy in Vietnam and in Mexico, for example. So industrial and logistics real estate in emerging markets, both emerging Asian markets and emerging Latin American markets are on fire right now. This was the number one thing that everybody in the industry was talking about at this uh, city conference I went to in Florida in March was the cap rate compression that we've seen on that asset type specifically. And so, yeah, they're, they're definitely exciting pockets of commercial real estate. Still, people are still really excited about life sciences. People are excited about cold storage. Um, there's definitely room places but there's just rent contraction unfortunately in a, in a in a lot of categories right now um and deals that were underwritten for rent growth um and lower interest rates but yeah i mean the the story of absorption in my opinion is is still a, a good story uh in the long term and i do you know i'm obviously jeff and i are investing in operating businesses we're not buying real estate anymore but i i concur with these folks who have left very stable incomes to, 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 to try and make a go of, uh, you know, doing a handful of deals and potentially running away from this cycle with a trophy asset. I mean, look at the Flatiron building, right? There's this botched 
auction process. The tenants completely vacated. The building's like half renovated from an HVAC perspective. Everybody hates each other. No one's talking. Like if someone charming like Jeff Berman gets into a deal like that, you know, you can make things happen. You take people to dinner. You you work it out. You schmooze. You schmooze. Yeah, come on. Well, tying back to something that, that Zach had mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the cost of capital has gone up. And with that, the value of capital has gone up. It is a really good time to have fresh capital. It does seem like um, there's incredible opportunities that um, are emerging now. Great points. And last but not least, I think, yeah, Mexico is definitely the country that will gain the most from this nearshoring or reshoring in diversification away from China. Anyway, deal path, Mike. So, so far you've raised $67 million in funding since co-founding uh, DealPath in 2014. You went from fun and games at Zynga to disrupting commercial real estate dealmaking. We'd love to, to learn about your journey. Take us to the origin. How did the idea for DealPath came about and how did you get to today? Uh, thank you for that. And DealPath has really been the coming together of my career paths. Out of undergrad, I started out working in real estate private equity uh, for a large distressed firm. And that's really where I was first exposed to commercial real estate transactions and how large-scale private equity firms were managing data. Unexpectedly, I got put on some systems projects there, really because that's what was needed at the time. And I ended up moving over to a hedge fund doing very similar work. The uh, CEO of the hedge fund had an operating background building semiconductor companies and was both a, a, a LP and a GP in a number of venture funds. And so we saw a lot of venture deal flow through the office. And that was really my first exposure to early stage company development. I ended up pitching an idea that we incubated at the hedge fund and uh, ended up spinning out and building an engineering team in Dallas and eventually moving out to the Bay Area and have now spent the past 15 or 20 years building venture-backed software companies um, out of the, the Bay Area. So I think along that journey, I've had uh, some uh, amazing adventures and, and met fantastic people. And one of those businesses you mentioned, Zynga, was a new category uh, of social gaming and what was really a very analytical business and uh, a fascinating one to be a part of. When we started DealPath, it was really former colleagues and friends in real estate that had been persistent in describing their challenges to manage their data through the deal process. And after, uh, say, a number of years of that, that uh, messaging, started to really hear it right, that there was this broken workflow in this really big industry that we had good knowledge and access to. And actually, this broken workflow could be the ideal mechanism to help create a foundational data structure for this uh, largest asset class in the world. And that was really exciting and a, a big opportunity that we wanted to pursue. So we co-founded DealPath almost exactly nine years ago. We celebrated our ninth anniversary on March 25th and uh, co-founded the company with two software engineers who I had worked with previously at Zynga. And the first 10 people at the company uh, were all direct network who had worked together previously. Um, all of us had come from financial services and real estate and had moved into software. And I think we were really excited to get to apply that learning from building large-scale software applications um, and uh, applying that to, to the real estate industry to unlock value. Since that, that founding nine years ago, we've really been methodically building out our platform and company to support more business. We're today really 
proud to support hundreds of institutions, to have supported more than $10 trillion in transactions, and see so much work and opportunity ahead, uh, which is just where we want to be. Fascinating. The Zynga Mafia, as they're called. Are you dreaming of a home that's both beautiful and sustainable? Look no further than Coda, the innovative architectural design firm that's revolutionizing modern living. Coda's stunning homes are not only beautiful to look at, but they're also built with the environment in mind. Their sustainable materials and energy-efficient features make them some of the most eco-friendly homes on the market. But that's not all. Coda homes are also designed for flexibility and adaptability. With their modular design, you can easily customize your home to fit your unique lifestyle and needs. So why settle for a traditional home when you can have a Coda? Visit Codasema.com today to learn more and start building your dream home. That's K-O-D-A-S-E-M-A dot U-S. To participate in CODA's investor funding round, contact Brian Dawson at brian at codasema.us. So let's break down deal paths to value propositions. Real estate most trusted, number one, deal management platform, and number two, empowering smart investment decisions. Um, let's go with the first one, deal management platform. What does that mean? What does that look like? Could you please expand on on the most impactful solutions and, and how do you create value for clients there? So DealPath is purpose-built for real estate. Um, and today, really specifically for the institutional buy side, we're the command center for the front office to be able to focus on value at work, to identify and mitigate risks and to deliver optimal risk-adjusted returns. We think that investment decision glory is when you can see the performance of your own portfolio in real time overlaid with every opportunity that you're seeing in the market and the comps of every asset and deal you've ever looked at or worked on. That's how you can make the best investment decisions and how ultimately you can deliver optimal risk-adjusted returns. Um, so that is really the, the problem space or opportunity space that, that we are focused on. Again, really today, uh, emphasis and focus on the needs of the institutional buy side um, and when I say the front office, I really mean the investment committee and the investment teams. Um, that's across deal types. So it might be firms that are focused on acquisitions or development projects or financing those things. Across those customers and transactions I mentioned, we support every property type, every deal size, and across geographies. And uh, we do observe movements in activity, something that, that we were just commenting on and I'm sure we'll likely come back to. So it seems to me that DealPath does create a, a holistic knowledge preservation for clients while tracking deal activity and helping understand real estate trends and metrics over time. I mean, we live in an era of unprecedented fast-paced change, and you have this framework for understanding, competing, and operating commercial real estate in the world we live in. You call this framework DAX uh, after its four key components, data, automation, collaboration, and scale which I find fascinating. So tell us, how can commercial real estate players best apply this framework in their own business? Well, you know, I think that maybe starting with the challenges that, that commercial real estate has faced, we really see two fundamental challenges for investors. The first is decentralized data. There is still no common data structure in the commercial real estate industry. And so these professionals and teams go to a variety of different data sources and very manually try to compile and format that information to glean insights from it. 
And all of that work is almost instantly lost in spreadsheets and emails. So there's a lot of repetitive work to, to gather and organize this information. Alongside and related to that, there are these really complex and specialized workflows. These are very valuable, time-sensitive transactions that require a lot of people. It requires coordination and work across different departments internally and work with a lot of different third parties. And to date, there haven't been any um, standardized workflows. There haven't been any purpose-built tools for this important work. So people have been forced to cobble together things that weren't designed for it. Even at the largest and most sophisticated firms, historically, they've had their pipeline and some kind of Excel document. They've had Word document checklists of tasks for due diligence and close-in. They've had transactional files that they try to organize and share and company share drives and virtual data rooms and file sharing services, and then lots of emails and phone calls to communicate around those things. You know, that was, I think, functional for, for a while. However, what has become really clear is that there's very clear economies of scale in the real estate investment management business. And in order to operate at scale with speed and precision, you really need to have purpose-built tools and systems to do this important work. If you want to raise and deploy and return on billions of dollars, you can't do that in, in spreadsheets and Word documents and emails effectively anymore. So I think that that's really what, what we've come to address is, you know, how can we help these firms and these professionals be able to create a, a centralized view into all of the data that they have access to, have the configurable workflows that allow their teams to work effectively from wherever they might need to with whomever they might need to, and have the data security that leading institutions require as they're um, hosting and storing more and more information in cloud services. Fascinating. Yeah, I definitely think that customization goes a long way because, you know, every company is dealing with their own buildings, collecting their own data, building their own source of truth. But one size doesn't fit all in real estate. Every building is different. Every organization is different. And I think that's something that, you know, from from clients' feedback and, and testimonials, it seems like you've uh, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. What, what do you find to be the feature set that gets utilized the most? Like the, that your client base says, hey, this stuff is nice. But this is the this is the the, the killer app. What, what's what's been the real growth driver? Yeah, I think that the fastest to value is first getting that centralized data that is highly performant and globally accessible. Um, so um, helping clients to build out templates of the views that they want to see and being able to automatically populate that information and have instant access to up to date reporting um, is super valuable and something that um, I think is is again fastest to value. I think that the workflow is like the hidden giant, which is that there's a lot of professionals that are right now blocked by a lack of information flow or clarity in terms of, of what needs to be done or what has been done. And that is a, a big opportunity to help standardize some of the workflows that are being done across teams and to have the smart tooling to alert people to what needs to be done, have audit trails of the information that, that has been completed and really help drive throughput. So I think that that initial fast value is around uh, that that uh, centralizing data and the depth of value really comes through building into those workflows. I think that's something that, that we are really excited about is that 
you know, we see this, this industry that has so much opportunity. It's been underserved by software and technology for some good reasons for a long time and is going through this belated and very accelerated digital transformation right now. We believe that the, the future of real estate investment management is ultimately more programmatic portfolio management and transaction execution, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. The first steps are how do we organize and structure all of the data that these firms have access to and start visualizing it so they can be more data-driven in their decision-making and start automating some of the steps along the way. And that's really what, what DealPath has been marching towards. Do you see that displacing some of the legacy software systems that have historically been part of the accounting infrastructure and the the, the giant that shall not be named because obviously it was a it was a it was a greenfield where you were approaching you know, that, like like you said your your go to market and the big feature set and then the stealth feature set that got folks excited but as you continue to grow where do you see like the the, the legacy of of deal path going we do expect to really continue to focus on deal and portfolio management. So with that, a real kind of view into the work of the front office. Now, in order to get the most value out of that, it needs to be integrated with the tools and systems that are, are used throughout these organizations. There's really important property accounting systems or ERP systems like you might be referencing, which we view as completely different. We see an important need around fund administration and investor relations, which again is something totally different and important part of, of their toolkit. We also see an emphasis on, on revenue and leasing operations, which is a big opportunity space that, that we're not involved with at all. So we always think of what sits up in front of the property accounting system. And that is really the, the universe that, that we want to play in. We've tried to design DealPath from the ground up as an open platform that's designed for interoperability. We expect for DealPath to be the center of a modern real estate tech stack. And we provide a third-party API and developer portal. We support ETL and built-in integrations. We make it easy for clients to be able to bring information into DealPath from whatever sources, tools, systems they might have it. Within DealPath, it's very well organized and designed for collaboration, again, with the lens of the uh, investment committee and investment team. And you can take that data, which is yours, which is now structured into any other tools or systems that you might need to utilize. So we don't necessarily see ourselves displacing any of those, those legacy systems. What we do see is the front office work not having specialized tools for their important work and not um, historically uh, being integrated with the tools used throughout the organization. Those are the, the opportunities that, that we're focused on. It seems like you've had adoption from clients, including hundreds of real estate investment managers, smaller boutique, mid-market firms, industry giants. But uh, I want to you know, zoom out here and talk a bit about adoption across prop tech and across real estate industry. What what can we do to increase adoption? What are, have been some obstacles that DealPath has faced uh, in terms of adoption and also how we can just, you know, increase adoption for industry at large? You know, maybe adoption is required, but adoption isn't the goal. Um, the goal is 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 value and there needs to be a really clear value to adopt things. And so over the past, and, and boy, Zach and, and Jeffrey have been really on the forefront of, of PropTech from the beginning, but over the past eight or nine years, there's been this surge of investment and development and new solutions, all these new point solutions that are coming to market. And that's been really exciting to see. But with that, I think 
you know, we've had to create new categories of tools that need to, to justify their existence. And that's a hard process to really educate and, and prove the awareness, the, the credibility, the need for, for clients to utilize these services. And those are being built while they, you know, find their product market fit. And we've seen some solutions in some categories start to really get traction and starting to, to get meaningful adoption and take off. We've seen others that have been, you know, more challenged to prove or justify that value. So it's a journey that, that we've been going through. And I think as a whole, PropTech, just the, over that, that time span, over the past, you know, eight years, has gone from early adopters that have been trying new solutions to a early majority of the market that is involved in some way in PropTech. And probably around the time of the pandemic, we're starting to really go from that early majority to mass market adoption of new tools. And it doesn't mean that everybody uses every tool, but I think that you'd be hard pressed to find a you know significant institutional investor that is not involved in prop tech in some way today. That's a lot different than it was a decade ago. So there's been huge progress made. It is snowballing, um, and you can smell escape velocity now. I think that that's you know the next twelve to twenty four months are, are really clearly grow up time as we're seeing consolidation in the industry. We're starting to see really large scale solutions emerge. We're starting to be able to really demonstrate the uh, value that that these services offer and that you have to utilize them in order to compete in the, the world ahead. Let's continue in this trend talking about the, the future ahead, the future of deal flow, the future of workflow software. But another topic that is being on, you know, in everyone's mind in the tech world and not is artificial intelligence, managing real estate deals in the AI era. How do you see AI impacting deal path? How do you see AI impacting deal flow across real estate? First, I'd just say it's really exciting. Machine learning and you know AI is an application of machine learning have tremendous potential in real estate. Deal path is very excited to be at the forefront and we'll have more public facing things to announce very soon. But I think that this all comes back to data management, whether we're utilizing machine learning or we're utilizing other statistical approaches the important thing is being able to extract meaningful and actionable insights from data. And that is, I think, what is really growing up quickly in real estate. Real estate is widely publicized to be the largest asset class in the world. It's also been around forever. So I would say it's the oldest asset class in the world. And real estate has always been about people with information. Now we have access to so much more information and data and are creating tools to, to be able to process and utilize that more intelligently. Um, it's really, really neat to, to be a part of this. Yeah. I think one of the most exciting things that Michael said was, was everything he's built has been API driven, API first, and that's both push and pull. So it's able to integrate with ERP solutions, whether it's something like an MRI, but it's also able to take data, ingest it, contextualize it. And so in today's world, DealPath doesn't even have to build its own generative AI algorithm. All it has to do is build an elegant integration so that its real estate users can leverage the benefit. I'm writing a real estate comic book right now, more, more to come on that and 
future episodes, but I'm using for writing a tool called Jasper AI and, and for image creation, a tool called Night Cafe. They both leverage a very elegant integration with ChatGPT and DALI so they can effectively use the algorithm in their sandbox. And so we actually just put out a white paper about ways that people can leverage very simple existing solutions to do basic real estate tasks. And this is with effectively no data, things like creating real estate listings that are unique that you have to do over and over again. And so if you have data that's been organized and contextualized because it's sitting in deal path for years, that enriches it even more and enhances your capability to really juice your productivity as a real estate professional infinitely. I mean, if you're a, a manager who's sitting in deal path, somebody like my old job, I used to be a customer of deal path and was an early investor when I was still a developer at Millennium Partners. And I was engaging with so many different parties, architects, land use attorneys, right? And, and I remember just even having a basic integration with a mapping solution back then was like sort of magical, right? And now we've we've compounded these integrations and we have taken all of this data over the years and the next 10 years are just going to be really exciting because we're gonna benefit from all of the data ingestion and organization that we've been working on with tools like DealPath for 10 years. And that's why I got involved as a early angel investor was for the, the hope of that potential in the future. Just maybe following that. Oh, I wanted to add on and, and Zach, thank you for your continued support. I think, um, you know, we agree completely with in the way that that he's really laid out kind of the, the evolution and the path ahead. What we see is the bright and inevitable future is that real estate will look more similar to the equity, debt, and currency markets, those being the four major asset classes globally. And what we mean by that is that real estate will see increasing regulation. There will be accounting and data standards and listing requirements. We're seeing this right now with ESG and other things. Real estate will have increasing liquidity and you know forms of, of online exchanges with electronic trading. And that this will really be driven by institutional investors and top brokerage firms. And you know, applying machine learning, applying modern collaborative software. These are all just, you know, ways of doing things better. And that is, is uh, I think, uh, what we're excited to help drive change management from and uh, what we see in, in front of us. I think an underlying pillar here that Tangent shares is uh, collaboration. I mean, we're collaborating within our firms, collaborating with AI, collaborating APIs back and forth. It all goes back to collaboration, which is our, our superpower as, as humans. So let's leverage that. And opposable thumbs. That is true. Crucial. Crucial. I'm not sure when we're going to get rid of our, our tiny, you know, our, our toes, our small toes, because those are pretty useless, just like appendixes, but that's neither here nor there. Mike, let's enter that discomfort zone for a minute. What's a perspective? We want to challenge you to share an opinion that you've changed your mind about recently, about business or about life. Uh, how did it happen? What information made you evolve your perspective? I'll do a personal one, I guess. I'm originally from Chicago. And a few months ago, I thought that this year the Cubs would win the World Series and the Bears would win the Super Bowl. I'm not sure of it. So that has changed over the past few months. I can imagine anyone has some input about uh, 
Sports ball, go Bears. I don't sports ball. I don't sports ball. So Soccer, tennis, pickleball, paddle. That's what we do in Tangent. There's a place, Jeff, we should collaborate on this deal. There's uh, there's this place called Ping Pod that's opened up next to my office and weirdly next to my house. So like only have two locations in New York. And it's like, it has all this tech, like you can like unlock the pad, like everything's like DIY, like through your app. It's a ping pong club, but it's like tech enabled and it's like super high margin because they don't really need it. You know, they have like one person there, period, the whole, just to like clean up and shit. It's great. Anyway, I'll get, I'm getting the deck. I'm getting the deck uh, soon. Can I share something I've changed my mind about recently that I think might be interesting to our listeners? Please, Zach. So I... um. I think Stan Druckenmiller is just a genius uh, hedge fund manager for many years, used to run George Soros, the quantum fund, then went on his own. I think his firm was called Duquesne Capital Management or something. He, he made a point on some podcast or interview that we'd never tamed inflation in a prior inflation cycle without bringing Fed funds over inflation. And I thought at the time, I was like, oh, golly, I certainly don't think that's gonna happen this cycle, but now I actually believe it will happen this cycle. We're gonna see a kind of meeting in the middle sometime around the autumn of this year where we might have you know, another 25 basis point or so tightening, maybe two more, and we might see inflation drop to slightly below that level. So effectively, he will have been correct yet again don't doubt somebody who's had like 35% IRR for like 50 years. Jeff, what do you think about, about that? So I, I think that's what is actually needed. But if the Fed buckles because of what's going on in commercial real estate, then we might like this is you know, the, the old proverb. May you, maybe it's not a proverb. May you live in interesting time. It is a proverb now. Yeah, it's a tangent saying. If there is if there is one silver lining for a really dicey commercial real estate climate, it does mean it's a rent contraction climate, which does mean it is a deflationary climate, which does bode well for pressures on inflation. And I think the jobs report, um, I think jobs are still stubbornly high, but showing signs of slowing. And so I think, you know, I don't know where our late summer, early autumn event will come from. If I knew I'd be trying to, you know, engineer some financial trade against it, but there's definitely, we're not out of the woods. It's definitely going to be a lot of fun. I think one thing I'd like to see in California, going back to our initial conversation, full circle, if you look at one of my most interesting explorations with AI and machine learning and, and um, content recognition software is in permitting. And I think fundamentally in California, we need to expedite permitting of simple projects. And then for complex projects, we need CEQA reform. For the listeners who don't know what CEQA is, that's the California Environmental Quality Act. It's an act that did a lot of good for the environment in California when it was enacted that has now, in my opinion, been sort of 
misused and abused and needs to be tweaked and reformed to become effective for the reality today, which is that we need a we definitely need better health and safety solutions in California. We are also in a massive housing undersupply crisis, of course, nationwide, but California acutely. And it doesn't help how challenging it is to get even the simplest of projects entitled, approved, permitted, and ultimately built. I think those are great points. Please start in San Francisco. Personal request. I mean, from my uh, armchair activist uh, perspective, the way I see housing issue in California, just issues at large in California, we have two main ways. One, we can tweak the rules, existing rules, like Zach just pointed out, or we can take advantage of existing rules such as builder's remedy. I mean, I don't know how we can trigger more of those builder's remedy, which for those who are not familiar, it's a provision in California's Housing Accountability Act that prevents jurisdictions without substantially compliant housing element from denying certain housing projects, which means that it doesn't matter if the projects do not comply with the local zoning, they can still go ahead. And through builder's remedy, thousands of housing units were recently approved across California because the local government didn't submit new housing plans on time, basically. So let's find more of those builder remedies. Mike, where can Tangent listeners learn more about DealPath and find you? DealPath.com. You can find that in the episode description. Michael Sroka, co-founder and CEO of DealPath. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Wonderful what you and the DealPath team have been building and will continue to build for the commercial real estate space. Thank you for having me and great speaking with you guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much, everybody. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is edited by Daniel Mora and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.